Hi, I'm Damien Matthews and I'm on the road. You're listening to Australia's number one ski racing podcast, On The, the Road, sponsored by Coldy's Tow Bars and Bull Bars, featuring Chelsea Stevens, Jack Coldrake, Mick Kelly, Dave Bishop, Tim Horbury, and Wade Bennett. My name's Mick Lumpton, now let's head to the 10. On to another episode of On The Road Podcast. My name is Lumpy and I really hope you enjoyed a walk down memory lane with Lester Fremantle in the last podcast. In fact, I know one guy that did, Nathan Stewart from Bendigo in Victoria. He is the winner of our prize pack. This time around, we have another On The Road listener t-shirt to give away. So make sure you stick around and answer Bisho's question at the end of the podcast. Plus, we have a new segment called Sponsoring The Spotlight. Now, Chelsea Stevens headed down to GTS headquarters in Mildura to interview a guy that has pretty much well done every aspect of ski racing and the sport we all love. As you are about to find out, Damien Matthews is successful in everything he does. Enjoy. Welcome, Damien Matthews, to On The Rope Podcast. I'm very excited to have one of the best in the business in the room with me today, and I'm sitting here in GTS HQ or G1 Logistics HQ, uh, beautiful boardroom here full of toys like always with Damo. Um, I'm really excited just to get to know about your journey. I mean, good mates for a long time, but these sort of questions are hard to ask over a beer, so I'm excited to hear myself a little bit more about the Damien Matthews journey. And to kick off, I guess I'd be keen to know, you know, you've been a part of the sport of water ski racing for a very, very long time. I mean, I've been in it for 30-odd years, and, then, and you've always been around. Um, how did you get involved, Damo? I started when I was 12 with a friend. Well, first of all, thanks, Charles, and thanks for the, uh, the opportunity to be part of uh, the podcast. Um, I started when I was 12, and um, my dad was friends with a guy called Murray Carter. He had a boat called Corruption. It's an old beat craft, 350 share V drive. Um, and he asked me to come out and have a go at Lake Hawthorne with a 75-foot rope with a bar out the front. And that's how it all started. You know, I think I was doing 40, 50 mile an hour. I think I was flying. <laughs> You've got to start somewhere, don't you? It's good for the listeners to know that one of the best in the business started off at 40, 50 mile an hour. Like all of us, we've all got to start somewhere. I guess you're, you're a man full of big aspiration. It's pretty easy to see that from the outside. And what were the dreams of the young Damo Matthews? Or were you more just about having a good time back in the day as a youngster? Oh, I had that competitive spirit from a young age and... You know, I was involved in other sports outside the water skiing. It was basketball, and I won eight best in Ferris's in a row. I played um, football, which I enjoyed, but the the most enjoyable was ski racing. I couldn't do it all, so I moved into ski racing. So although it wasn't that good, I really had a real hunger and an appetite to win. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're sort of... Even though you chose water skiing, you were better at basketball and footy probably, but your, your love was for the water skiing. At the time, for sure. Yeah, that, mm. that is interesting because you find sometimes that people follow what they're good at, but you followed what you were passionate about. What I enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. And then worked harder. 
worked very hard. Very interesting. You started your ski racing career as a successful skier, and it's interesting because some of the early, the newer ski racers may not even know that. They may know Damien Matthews that uh, observed in Team Hal and for Hellraiser for many years. And uh, I mean, I know I've always followed your journey and learnt about what you did back in the day. But fill us in, I guess, on starting your career as a as a skier, uh, and how how did you get to the top as a skier and such a youngster? You were. You fill us in on what you did do, but you were skiing in superclass from a very young age. And how did you go about doing all of that? Yeah, I, I think um, some of the benefits was growing up on the Murray River at Golgol and having that river in your backyard. You had that access to, to do a lot more training. You know, I come a, a smooth water fast skier really quickly, but I struggled when I travelled around the country in that um, longer distance rough that took a lot, a lot of work to condition to. But having that Murray River at home was certainly a, one of the advantages. And you skied behind some pretty cool crews back in the day? Yeah, I had a lot of fun with um, Ted Hurley, um, with the recovery. Um, Graham Ritchie, I know a lot of racing with Graham when he had aggravation. Um, a lot of VST, VSTC. Graham actually took me to Sydney a few times with the eight litre boat racing against the the superclass boats, and then uh, as I got better, I got invitations to go up to um, Lion Island with uh, with Stan Najar, with Network, with Ian Dipple, which was good. I think that race got, um, we broke the record by 10 minutes, and then it got cancelled for some reason, I didn't run it anymore. And then I got some invitations with Top Gun, and uh, you know one of the big wins up there was the Sydney Bridge to Bridge and the Sydney Series, and... Um, by the time I was 18, I'd nearly won most of the races in Australia, including King of the Murray with Island Cooler. And uh, and probably my biggest highlight as a skier was Australian Open Men's. Back then, the era of ski racing was, you know, the, the, the amount of entries was solid. Uh, mm-hmm. I think back at the time then, Australia probably had half a dozen of the strongest men in the world mm-hmm. with the Robertsons family. and. And there was a lot of others, so it was very competitive. And um, I remember the sort of hit out I had with uh, Paul Robertson in Australian Open Men's was great. And he unfortunately had a fall ride in the last lap, more neck and neck. Mm. You did, and I mean, it's so true. You come out of an era of some amazing names. You've got your Paul Robinsons, your Ian Dipples, um, well, Stephen Robinson as well, and even the Deminx boys are all in there. And I, I've actually looked at some results back in the 90s in the Open Men's and, and you know, late 80s sort of early to mid 90s and there is some there's some serious fields we're talking 20 to 30 men lining up that all could have had a chance of winning so how did you go I mean we taught you just mentioned as a youngster you, you weren't the best water skier you were probably better at basketball but you actually then turned that around to prior to the age of 18 nearly winning all the races outright um yeah that's a crazy achievement I'd love for the listeners to know how did you turn that around? Was it just your passion and you and you put the work in in the gym and on the water, or how did you do that? Oh, without a doubt, you got to put the work in. But um, I think it's that desire of that hunger, the appetite to win. You know, and, and uh, there's a lot of us that have um, been through all that and experienced that. And once you got that, you know, the work just comes to second nature because if you lose, you work harder. Mm. If you lose, you work harder again mm. until you win. Mm. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I know with my Open Women's World title, it's the same sort of thing. I, I didn't. I won one selection race 
that that made me want to do more work because I knew I had to work harder than what the girls were doing to win. So it's a bit of that, isn't it? The, the work, it, although it's the hard piece, comes easy when the mindset's there. It certainly is. And I could ski as fast as anyone in the world for you know, at 18 uh, in an F1 race for half an hour. No problems mm. at all. Mm. But I couldn't do the second half. You needed you know, endurance. I had a lot of falls. I didn't have the endurance. So that was something I lacked. The speed was something I didn't lack. Mm, so you had to... And I think it's funny because I think that's a... I shouldn't say a Victorian thing because the New South Welsh people would love that. But it is a Victorian thing in the fact that our format of racing for many years hasn't built us to be endurance skiers like the, the New South Wales skiers, I guess. Yeah, we didn't have that um, endurance races. We used to go and have six, seven, eight races. They were all sprints. Mm. So that's how we're conditioned. Correct, yeah. And I don't think, yeah, the my training wasn't as serious as it needed to be. I only got really, really serious in my training the last 18 months. Mm. Mm. So let's talk about that last 18 months because I know you, you were looking really, really strong for a world championship as a skier and, and you, you came to a massive crossroad in your life and uh, I guess a water skiing accident left you with a permanent injury. Can you, can you give us a little bit of an insight to start with about the success story on that, which is the fact how, how strong you were looking going into a world championships potential um, your competition and, and then I guess finish off with what, what happened to, to prevent that from coming from that dream coming true. Yeah, so it's a bit of a sore point and I'm sort of scarred, you know, I think for life that you know, I had this desire to be world champion. I nearly got myself so close where the current world champion was Paul Robertson. I'd beat him in the Australian Open men's and made the Australian team. And then the last race prior to the world titles was the Bill McLaughlin. Back then was invitation. Entries were full and they take off in a ranking. So the ranking number one skier was last and Paul and I took off last. Unfortunately, I hit that log. It was submerged. I didn't see it coming and, um, and uh, had a real serious accident where I drowned and you know, I had a lot of injuries with the dead arm, was only one of them. It took me probably six to 12 months to get over all the internal infections and problems that I had at the time. Crazy. And I mean, it's so sad that it wasn't in your control what happened. And this is the hard thing when it comes to water ski racing, I guess, is that you were prepared, you'd done all the work, your mindset was there, you had done all the training to become an endurance skier. And at the end of the day, something outside of your control took that away from you. Yeah, I think I was I I was well prepared at that stage, so the endurance wasn't an issue. Mm. I was keen, probably a little bit eager. Mm. I actually do recall the first time telling my crew, you know, I'd never be a, a cocky, but I was confident. But you know, the first time I told the crew just to make sure I do win, and I can't believe I can remember telling them, make, make sure, sure I do I win. win this. I want to go into the world titles on top. On yeah, with that win under. The, against the world champion, not coming as a, an underdog. Yeah. yeah. You wanted to beat him before you got to the main yeah, show. Yeah, just for a mental game. Yeah, yeah. and, and that, that was heading into the 91 or 3. Was it 93? Hmm, can't remember. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that would have been around about the 93. 93 world mm. titles, yeah. Mm, interesting. And I mean, and then after that, I guess, what happened? What, what turned in your life after that accident? Did it just... Your mindset, obviously you had a recovery period that was no doubt a very long time and then did your mindset change onto something else for a period of time or? Yeah, I had a break from, um, I needed a break from everything. I actually, behind the scenes, started training again and I got myself really fit and strong again and uh, that hunger was still there. So it took a long time to wind off to think that 
Mum had to tell me at some stage I was on this exercise bike sweating it out after an hour and a half saying it's over, it's over, mm. just to pull up. Yeah. So most people didn't get to see that, but you know, you're just wound up and young and and uh, didn't want to accept no. But then I had a, a good break from the sport and um, and I met Mark and Tracy Cranning at a car race, at a V8 supercar race. And, um, and it was down in Melbourne and Mark had been racing for a little while then and um, he approached me if I wanted to come and um, observe with the team. So... I spoke to my wife, Jenny, and uh, said, let's go and do it for a year, and we'll see how we go from there. There you go, and that was the start. And I mean, you were, you were a part of Team Hell, a team that dominated the sport for over a decade, and I mean, there is no one that is a water ski racing enthusiast that does not know Hell Razor, Damian Matthews, Mark Cranny, and the team, um, and Team Hell. Not only were you a part of that team, you were actually an... Don't blush here, but you are, and I still would rank you as one of the best observers in the world. Uh, fill us in on that team hell journey and and the years of success. Like I mean, I was very fortunate to have a few runs behind team hell, and when you get behind a new boat, you don't know how the observers going to read you or what they're going to do. And it, you were definitely one of the best in the business because I remember just letting you guys run every race that I had the privilege to ski behind you. Fill us in on that journey and and how that <coughs> unfolded. Oh, there's no doubt, you know, it's led from Mark, and, you know, Mark was a great uh, leader to be under. He had so much hunger and desire to win, um, you know, and I was very similar, and then we put the people around us that were were uh, like-minded, and the results sort of come naturally, but it was just a really good opportunity being part of something that was, you know, it was special, and um, something like that can happen again, but you really, really have to get everyone to click, and to be able to consistent, you know, to be able to win, anyone can win, but to consistently win back to back to back to back, and you know, a lot of the risk management and keeping everyone level, and um, we were certainly dialed in there for ten years. But mm. there was a lot about winning back to back to back to back that we're proud of, not an actual win. Exactly. Be, yeah. And you know, and out of the times where we're sort of pushing the boundaries, we were managing our risk well, where we we haven't got a trail of injuries or you know some. We didn't hurt a lot of people, which we're proud of. Mm. I mean, we won't call numbers because you and I had a chat before we went live on the podcast. So we're not really sure of the exact numbers, but I know uh, from from sort of looking a little bit, there's multiple, and I'm talking probably double-digit Southern 80 outright victories. There's Sydney bridge-to-bridge wins. There's there's not a river race uh, that, that Team Hell didn't win. And I think there was actually a stage there where you pretty much owned all the records uh, for, for especially the Murray River races. Um, so an extremely successful team. And as part of that, as you just mentioned, you did manage risk really well, but you also managed volatility or changes in the team well. It seemed you didn't consistently have the same skiers throughout that whole journey. You've you've towed some of the best in the business over the years. I mean, to name a few, you're Daniel Campbell's, Grant Patterson's, Jason Wormsley, the main man, Wayne Moore, Pete Proctor, Chris Gell, uh, you know, just to name a few. And they're all they're all the best in the business too that have teamed up with you. Can you? I'd love to know as an observer. You see a fair bit in the observer seat of what goes on in the lead up. You're talking to your skiers. You see them um, just before they jump off the deck. You see them at the end of the race. Is there any common traits you've noticed in these amazing athletes that you've observed for, or what do you think makes these guys tick to want to ski behind a boat at 120 to 130 miles per hour? <clears throat> Yeah, there's a lot of big names there. There's, there's more, including yourself, and um, 
also remember the first world title with um, Trudy Stout. Oh, Trudy Stout, um, yeah. And um, we towed Brendan Stout in the early days a lot too on the national titles and Chris Stout. So, um, but there's no doubt with all them names that, you know, they all had the same goals, the same hunger and determination that they wanted to win. So it was easier to work with them sort of, you know, just like-minded people. But in my role, I found it a little bit more than an observer, just keeping everything maybe a little bit... Um, making everyone feel comfortable and reading the play and understanding someone's having a bad day or how far you can push the boundaries. And a lot of the times when we break the records, we weren't always going as fast as we could because we wanted to get to the finish. Our number one goal was getting to the finish with everyone safe. And back then, you know, with mechanical engines, not all these Mercury's, we need to make sure the motors got home, so we, we were looking after stuff and being conservative mm. while we're breaking records. Mm. Which is true, actually, and we'll just touch on this slightly as well you weren't running Merck packages and you were an extremely um reliable team you know, it wasn't it wasn't one of those things like Hellraiser's is not going to finish it was like Hellraiser's is probably going to win right if you were if you put in a bet on around the bar you would have put it on Hellraiser. touch i just want to touch on i know there was a pretty big uh main man behind the scenes there as part of your team as well which we know mark cranny doesn't do anything in halves i'm still privileged to be family friends with the family and nothing's done in halves but but who made sure that all that that team continued to tick from a mechanical perspective oh yeah stewie thomas is well known in the in the business and i think he's probably the best in the business of putting an engine together and maintaining it um the results sort of state that you know the obvious but uh and it really come from Mark, the way he, you know, there's just so check, 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 check. You know, he drove everyone to make sure that everyone was doing their part and Stewie's doing his part. He was great at what he'd done. Mark was making sure he was getting done. So mm. it was just a whole team effort to get the results that we did consistently. And I think, like I said, you've said it a couple of times now, but that comes from you, or Mark Cranny initially, recruiting into his team like-minded individuals that wanted to leave no stone unturned to be successful. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, right from, you know, Tracy was a big part of that as well. Just as we travel everywhere we went, you know, Tracy was always there and making sure we're all fed, making sure we're all, the whole, we all got treated like family. But it put you in the mindset to be able to give it, you know, your best performance. and Yeah, comfortable and, environment, yeah. everyone's been looked after, and it was fun. So so it was fun, and, uh, yeah, we got a lot of great results. Mm. And I tell you what, there's no better wife than Tracy Cranny, that's for sure. Look, I want to touch on a little bit, and I know this is probably another sore point because I have been privileged to do a podcast with the man himself, Wayne Moore, uh, which will be probably going live before, if not just after yours. But... I know in 2009 you went over to the world titles. It was one of a few world championships that Team Hal uh, went, went to. But 2009 was an interesting one because it didn't go to plan in regards... It did go to plan in regards to having the world championship win, but it didn't go to plan in the way you normally would want to win a world championship. I was on the uh, banks of the canal in Belgium in 2009 watching the last race unfold uh, between yourself and and Randy Davis's crew of Todd Hake uh, racing against Wayne. And there was a little bit of a mishap that happened in the last race, and I think it was actually the last straight. Was it the last straight? Yeah, it was the last straight of the last lap. But the, to probably paint the picture, we'd run 
four hours side by side, shoulder to shoulder in the, the most confined style of racing. And there was a lot of incidents from start to finish at all different stages that were right or wrong or other. It was racing. Mm. And, uh, you know, that the, the well-known incidents on the very last lap, um, uh, the, our competitors couldn't count and they cut in front of us at the finish line and we had to spin the boat out and drop Wayne off and couldn't go across the finish because they didn't continue to go ahead because the chequered flag had already been... And so it was a real controversy. It was a um, terrible way to get a win under them circumstances. As far as the skis, they ran four hours side by side. Pretty hard to pick, you know, okay. what's true winner out of that. But uh, it was, um, yeah, one of the one of the experiences I've had that was probably disappointing to, to win like that after such a big hard effort from from both teams. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure there would have been a few words spoken in the boat that day between you and Cran. There was a bit going on. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there was, I bet there was. So you've also gone on then, though. It was, uh, what, 2009, mm. and then you sort of had the world title win in 2015 in Open Men's, it was, I think, wasn't it, with Hell Yeah? Hell uh, Yeah with uh, Pete Proctor in New Zealand. Yeah. That was some really fun racing over there, some big water. Uh, so I'm racing against Daniel Graziano and Todd Haig and um, really enjoyed them worlds actually and Pete was probably right in his prime so he was just a uh, bit of a treat to tow with his ability and his stamina and um, and that boat was really, really, really good for those conditions so it wasn't so, you know, we just come off the back of them four hours in Belgium, it was mm. a completely different style, it was still intense but mm. um, you know, Pete really dominated them worlds, there's no no two ways about that. Mm. I think uh, interesting in those worlds, though, because correct me if I'm wrong, but Pete, again, it probably didn't go perfectly to plan because Pete had a little mishap in one race, didn't he, and, and unfortunately had a fall. Yep. Um, but I remember I was competing in those worlds myself, and like you said, it throwed some challenging conditions. In windy Wellington in New Zealand, there was, there was some strange water out there, uh, and it was easy to have a mishap, that's for sure, if you were, de- if you were having a go. Uh, but Pete Proctor, the way he bounced back from that accident was unbelievable. Uh, how, how did the team regroup? You, you went through a pretty big change out there on the water. You would have no doubt gotten the boat and, and in your mind thought, how are we going to push on? Graziano was right there. Daniel Graziano was right there on, on points. Still had a couple of races to go. How did he bounce back from that accident and you as a team to take that win? Yeah, Pete, um, credit to himself. It was just a, a real small error that made a, a big negative result. But, you know, we were pretty comfortable in the lead at the time. Um, as a team, I didn't feel that we actually uh, arrived at the time of the incident, pushing the, we weren't really pushing the boundaries. But I think that's why Pete turned it around so quickly. He was so disappointed in himself, took accountability, couldn't wait to get out and turn it back, turn the result around. You know, he came out charging the first mm. straight, the first lap, the next race, and really, really pushed the point. So, you know, that's a sign of a true world champion, just uh, accountability, get up and make it happen. Yeah, mm. and he was he was sort of pretty belted up too. So I meant mm. really the sign of mental strength, because no doubt he would have been a bit sore. And as we know, race days in the world titles are only one day rest. So he's just bounced back on the ski, and he mentally knew he was there. Like you said, you had the big lead before the mishap, and he's bounced back and just made it happen, which is which is really impressive as a team all up.
It's time now for Sponsors in the Spotlight. Hey, listen, Coldy, thanks for jumping in. Really wanted to give you a good plug your show. Um, so tell us a bit about what you do at Coldy's uh, Toe Bars and Bull Bars. Oh, well, it's, there's a lot more to it than just Bull Bars and Toe Bars these days. Like, you know, roof racks. We, our main core business is tradie setups, like as in the tradesman comes in. Like in my idea 30 years ago was when I was working in this industry that like the little tow bar shops around Sydney, the four-wheel drive industry wasn't as crazy as it is now, but the little tow bar shops, your wife had dropped the car off or you dropped the car off on a Saturday morning or she might do it during the week and you got a dirty old white plastic chair sat out the front and waited for your car. I went to that next concept. I thought, well, this isn't that hard to do mobile. So I set my first shoot up with an electric compressor. I'd drive into your driveway, plug in your power, only for the air tools, and then bang, I'd do it. Went on a convenience thing. I went further on the next shoot I built with a petrol motor compressor. So you could be at work, in the car park at work, a building site, a carpenter, plumber, anyone. And while they're working, they weren't losing time, weren't losing time with their family. So the concept worked girl and built up to a point where I've got four to five trucks at the moment, only back down to three with the COVID things knocked it around a bit. And um, on the road, but the workshop side is huge. Like we've just finished a 79 series Land Cruiser Dual Cab, which were pretty popular. And the guys driven out yesterday, absolutely ecstatic. And it was four days work for three of us, four days full on. And um, the car's up around $130,000. Like they're a very popular car, the Land Cruiser Dual Cab, like an off-road. And um, it's left us to go further on to have SAS seats and a few other things. But the forward drive industry is gone crazy and like you've always got your big companies and which i affiliate with a lot of them i sell every product so if you come in you can get an arb bar an ironman bar you can get whatever you like out of me but my main thing is getting the service getting the little things like making all four roof racks line up i have a new concept on the way yeah you told me about it earlier pretty awesome yeah the covid 19 brought on a few things the business sort of went i shouldn't say away from but we sort of diverted down with the big fleet stuff and had a different way but the people that I first service still need that service like Tim you're in an office block and you're working way hammer and tong on your business and you need a set of roof racks so you and the wife can take your push bikes or kayaks or etc away so I've got a new concept coming you have to watch this space called roof racks to you awesome. um, yeah so yeah, we're hoping to get that out. up and running tomorrow we're filing off some signage and work stuff and then there'll be a new on the app web page yeah. Whatever we can do to get to that, just people's lives are so busy. Yeah, and, and mate, like, you, do, you do an awesome job. You know, um, in previous work lives, have uh, had you know work colleagues uh, had work vehicles that you got you guys helped out with. Um, so that was, yeah. that was one of the more recent interactions. And I, I do know you helped my brother out a fair bit with uh, the wheelman stuff. Oh, well, time valuable work. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and I know John's. Um, He's, he's bought a bit of gear off here to tow the big bloody girl around. and uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done electric brakes and tow bars and stuff to make sure, like, you know, all those things are safe when you're towing them the distances we do tow when we get back into the, our love for and, sport, which is ski racing. So, yeah. yeah. And so, I, do yeah. Know, I do know you've got a new employee. How's, uh, how's young Nitro Jordan going? Goes all right. About two o'clock, I've got to chuck a Mars bar in order to get him going again because he don't drink Coca-Cola, but... Nitro's first days and has been for about 12 months. He comes out, he just dribbles ski racing constantly. So yeah, you've got to wear a raincoat because he gives it to you, <laughs> as Nitro does. But like the last last week when we were doing this Land Cruiser, he was putting lights together. I'll send you a video. I had him doing things. Like as in, he just doesn't sweep floors in empty bins. He washes company cars, cleans them out. Just learning concepts of working. He gets on great with all the boys. Loves the girls at the shop. You'll have to ask him about Annalise. 
Oh, he loves it. But can't wait to get to the shop. But he has a great day. And it's good for any the boys love him and he loves the affiliation with the boys. But no, he's a great he's a great asset, young Nathan, you know. Yeah. Anyone that walks through the door, it's hello, what's your name? Yeah. No matter who they are, you know. So he's, he's which really is good. He's really good until you put a microphone in his face. Then he's not too keen. I did that at the New South Wales Ski Racing uh, Series Day one day, and he, he backed off big time. But uh, everyone thought it was hilarious, but he wasn't too impressed. But no, I do, yeah, not... really, do, do really rate him as a young man, and, and he does love ski racing. There's no doubt about it. Oh, lives and broves it. Yeah. Yeah, the old microphone or the Easter Bunny. You get someone in the Easter Bunny cop, and he'll run 10 quicker than, like, Michael Jackson. He's... <laughs> <laughs> he's... He hates the Easter Bunny. I don't know what it is. Must have flogged <laughs> him one day. <laughs> well, mate, it's been great chatting about your business. Um, Cody, yeah. Tobars and Bulwars, we really, um, at On The Rope podcast, are so grateful for you for your assistance to get our podcast up and going. Uh, it's a lifelong association um, with, with the, your, you and your business. Um, we all know you. Everybody in ski racing knows who you are. Um, mate, it's been great chatting. No worries, mate. That's all. Thank That's you. All. feel there is a correlation in successful athletes that then transfers into into business people you my friend have achieved both you extremely successful athlete i've spoken about you you've won outright races as a skier yourself you had some amazing days back in the island cooler days and i've actually done a podcast on larry welsh who spoke extremely highly of towing the young the youngster damian matthews uh and and you've moved on to then transfer that skill or that mindset across into business, how have you overcome, I guess, all the hurdles that have been thrown at you and fill us in on what it takes, I guess, to not only be at the top of sport but in business as well because, I mean, we're sitting here in HQ and this is a big setup and, and you are the main man that have ran this. And talk us through the business a bit. And, I, I mean, I initially when I met Damien Matthews, and don't be offended, I'm sure you won't, was like, oh, his dad gave him this business. But then when I got to know you and, and actually learned about your business, yes, your dad may have started off, but you have absolutely grown this business to a, this massive beast that it is today. Fill us in on, on how you've overcome everything to get to where you are. Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, and I, I think there's no doubt um – you know, I got a bit of a start in life with Dad, um, and I certainly don't um, forget that. You never forget where you come from, but you know, from where we started to where we are today, there's a massive journey, and most people won't realise. In 2008, uh, January one, that I actually I, I bought the business as well. So I bought GTS, and G1 wasn't even started. And G1, I started on my own. It was a separate identity, different ABN, and it was good to have a couple of logistics businesses to grow for different reasons but I you know I haven't done university degrees or anything like that but I have a hunger to I want to be successful and you keep on learning all the time but I guess more recently you know in the big growth of the business I'm starting to learn as you as I mature that you know getting too far and too involved in the business which you naturally always want to do went against me so pulling back and letting your people run the business but making sure that you have the right tools to analyse and the right dashboards and reporting so you can actually steer the business in the right direction has been a lot more success for me. And that's a little bit of that don't work in the business, work on the business type uh, type saying, isn't it? And, and, and you and I just had a chat then before we started recording, so I want to try and recapture that amazing conversation we had. 
you uh, you now exactly said you've stood right back. You're not dealing with any small issues, and you now literally call yourself the business analyst in a way. You just analyze everything that's happening in this business, looking for the one percenters. Let the listeners, I guess, give the listeners a little bit of an insight into how that works. Yeah, there's a, probably a step leading into that is to make sure that you create your team. And if you haven't got the team and the confidence, you can't step back. And it took a long time to create the right team and the structure. And, but um, I've certainly got that in place now. And stepping back, I just feel like I'm more balanced. You're a level, you're making better decisions rather than being agitated, being part of all the highs and lows. You're not making the right leadership decisions for your team and customers and for the business. So, yeah, it's a different... Um, you naturally just want to get in and go. But you've got to pull yourself out of that and let your team involve, get involved in all the detail and you make sure that you're just leading the ship in the right direction. And there's a bit of correlation, correlation there in um, regards to business and water skiing in the fact that have confidence in your team. Because I know that as a skier, one thing I always struggled with until I got my amazing crew and especially Christian Apps as an observer who stood by me for a decade, it's hard to... Let them run the show unless you have 100% confidence. And I think that's something that did come when I did have the privilege to ski behind Team Hal or even Marcus Cranny that I had confidence and you can get your best results with confidence in your team. So you're pretty much just saying you've, you pass that confidence to your team and now you're just really the business analyst and overseeing the one percenters in that way. Yeah, and, you know, you, you understand where your strengths and weaknesses are. And you, I put my, you know, my strengths are in that business development. Mm-hmm. in that um, selling the concept to the, the major blue chip customers and I enjoy being part of that. I know that's what I do well and so I keep putting my ear in that whereas I don't want to get in and manage all the drivers and all the people and all the day-to-day stuff where you get frustrated so I don't do that. Yeah, and that's where you keep yourself in a calm state and a, a good mental capacity <clears throat> to be able to run the business and drive growth in the business as well. Just so the listeners know, I think both Damo and I have matured over the years because this is actually the Tuesday morning, 7am after a long weekend, and we are both here, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. So a bit of maturity comes along with that business growth too, no doubt. Yeah, look, oh, no doubt. <laughs> Everyone knows I've enjoyed myself, but uh, yeah, you, um, yeah it's, uh, it's too hard now. I get a little bit older too and still enjoy myself, but uh, yeah. Being in this morning, watching the sun come up was actually quite good and just a few surprised people see me as I'm walking around. It was actually yeah. quite good. Yep. Can you, um, do you think when you had, um, and I mean, I know it's a really sore point, so I don't want to keep retouching on it, but when you had your accident, do you think potentially then uh, it triggered you across to mainly maybe focusing on having a crack in dad's business and going, I want to own this now that you've lost the dream of, of, a, of becoming a world champion because of the dead arm incident? Do you think that potentially got shifted um, across back then? Oh, there's no doubt. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, my father would point me in the right direction to put. You know, I had plenty of plenty of energy, but you know, in the wrong area. So he he gave me the opportunity to put the energy into the business and learn. And and the further I went, the better I got. Like you do with whatever you put your mindset to. And mm. uh, and still today, I think I'm still learning, and I still don't. I'm still not where I want to be. So, you know, we're growing at a faster rate than we've ever, ever grown at off a bigger base, and I don't feel satisfied. Hmm. And, and I really do believe that 
people that have that energy can focus it anywhere. I know I, I sometimes think I have a little bit of ADHD, but if I use it in the right way, I think it is quite beneficial in my life. Yeah. Um, but you are right. And it's good for the listeners to hear you say that everyone is like well, you as a person who is an extremely successful athlete and businessman is always learning. It's, it's a big thing. And I, I, I'm always listening to podcasts these days. I'm always reading books. I'm always trying to upskill myself because not only are we learning as we go, but there's so many new things coming out in, in today's world. And I mean, you, you work in logistics, you're in transport. There is no doubt forever changes in your industry. Uh, and that's something that you're probably wanting to try and keep on top of. Yeah, then we see some big changes. It's about reading the play and positioning the business in the in the right um, place, you know, and especially with all, you know, the COVID was, we were a big part of the supermarket supply chain, so it went crazy there for a while and couldn't keep up, and then the following month we had nothing to do. So it's been able to adapt your business to what the volumes are, and now the big thing is uh, purchase online. We're now getting involved in logistics on doing a little bit more of that door-to-door. Mm. Which is interesting because before we jumped on the podcast, we spoke about Amazon and and Amazon as a company is a logistics company, which is online purchasing. But what they don't realise behind the scenes is literally it's about transportation. And um, when I think about industries that you'd want to be in in this forever changing world, I tell you what, I think logistics and transport is one that's never going to go away. We can't have robots uh, transport our stuff down the freeways, can we? So. You're in a good place and you've got some, no doubt some pretty big business success ahead of you with the mindset. And I can tell uh, even demo of today from demo of 10 years ago, having a good time with you, you do seem quite relaxed um, and, and quite switched on with where, where you're heading. Look, I just want to retouch on ski racing for a bit before we keep pushing on. And I know this is a hard question and I've asked a few people this and they've gone, oh God, you're putting it on me. But what would be one of your best memories of ski racing? Like, what's one of your best memories? If you think back and you go, what's something I think of? And whether as a skier or as observer, or maybe you've got two or three of them, but what's what's some of the best memories this amazing sport we're involved in has given you? Yeah, I've certainly got plenty of those. Um, as a skier, it's got to be the Australian Open men's. Back in that time, that was the, that was the big thing that everyone wanted to do. Female or male was the Open men's was the... The big race outside the you know the Sydney Bridge to Bridge in the the southern eighties, mm. and then as a team with Team Hell, you know the multiple world titles was was certainly uh, really satisfying. But I think to just keep on bettering ourselves with the you know, at the end there we weren't actually racing the field in the river races. We were racing our own times everywhere we went. We won the better and said we weren't happy just to win. We had to go and break a record. We we were going home dissatisfied. So. It was a pretty good feeling just to keep on, I guess, lifting the bar and setting new benchmarks all the time. So you're pretty much chasing PBs as a team. Every race, every yeah. river race. Which, like I said, it's not, you can't say Team Hell was the same four people the whole journey. So kutas and hats off to you and Mark Cranny because you two were Team Hell and you had skiers coming in and out, which you obviously selected to sit, to fit into your your. your your team environment, but you did an amazing job in holding that team together at, at such such a high level of success. How uh, how does your mindset, competitive spirit, as you used earlier in the podcast, passion and, I guess, perseverance continue to play out in your life today? I mean, we've touched on business. No doubt that's a huge part, but is there anything you do or mainly to, to keep yourself on track? Oh, I don't think there's anything precisely. Um, 
It's certainly, just chipped in you. It's I, embedded in you. Yeah, and I can see that the more focus and the more energy, the more you know, the more return. So it's it's, it's quite easily that the more you put in, the more you get out. Mm. I find that with my kids now. You know, my father of two boys, and uh, you know they're ten and twelve now, and I'm actually really enjoying now just um, just watching them grow up and and try to give them the best direction I can, and I'm really enjoying that side of life. Mm, I bet, I bet. They're two very active boys these days, no doubt, too. But before we touch on the family, because I do want to have a talk about Jen and the boys, um, there's a lot of kids out there and competitors who aspire to be like yourself. And sometimes that's weird to hear, but it's true. And there's even observers that no doubt wish they could have had the experiences that you have had. If there's one thing you would say to these kids and competitors one word of advice or one sentence of advice, what, what would you say to them? Don't give up. Um, you, it doesn't always come easy, but you need to keep on, you need to keep, you've got to keep your motivation regardless of your results. Mm. And then when you get knocked down, you've got to get back up and you've got to go again. So it's that positive sort of mindset. You've got to have that, uh, if you've got the hunger and desire, it will come, but you've got to keep pushing for it. Mm. And don't worry, no one knows that better than me, Damo. It took me, what, I think it was 16 years between world championships to actually win one, and a few people telling me it was never going to happen. So you are right, if you've, got, if you've got the desire and you've got the want and the will to actually do the work, you just got to pursue and not give up and make sure, you, make sure you put yourself in the right environment and the right team as well. Oh, you certainly got to be around the right people, and, but if you've got the right attitude, um, that certainly comes... Hmm. It's interesting because I have read a book once actually that talks about you, uh, the secret behind the law of attraction, that usually if you're, as you said, you've spoken about mindset and, and like-minded my, mindsets a few times in the podcast and uh, this book talks heavily around the law of attraction, that you actually attract people into your life who are of a similar mindset and uh, sometimes I guess a similar sort of attitude, like you and I have had a fair few nights having a good time, so those sort of law of attractions do play out, I guess. But let's get back onto the serious stuff before we uh, let the listeners know too much information. You, my friend, are also a family man, uh, as you just spoke of your two boys, and, um, and, and lucky to have an amazingly supportive wife in Jen who has followed you around the world and, and let your wings fly through, um, you know, through business, sport, and, and everything outside of that. Uh, Jen's always been the quiet one. It took me a few years to get to know her well. I, I thought she was the quiet one, but she also uh, has a bit of a crack and loves loves a good time like yourself, Damo. Fill us in, I guess, on a bit of the home life. I mean, it, it's not all business and sport. You've got some pretty cool people behind the scenes as well. Yeah, I've been a little bit lucky, but everyone's got <clears throat> choices, so you choose, you choose your partners and what you want to do there. But Jen's been very good for me to allow me to, to follow my dreams and travel and, you know, I feel the early days there that maybe I wasn't the, the best father that you could be because you're a little bit selfish on achieving, you want to achieve your own achievements. But I'm certainly catching up quickly now and giving them every bit of time I can. That's both my boys and Jen. And um, I'm probably really enjoying life more today than I ever have mm. with all the time together. So we're in a good spot. That's, and that's helping with today's, you know, business, lifestyle, watching the, you know, just the whole picture at the moment. We're all working together. Well, yeah, and how old are the boys now? Uh, Jordan's 10 and Dane's 12. Dane's got a real passion for aviation. Wow. So he doesn't want to work for me, but... Um, <laughs> so, he might be able to do flying yeah. transportation. So he wants to be a pilot, and yeah. so it'd be interesting to just get behind him and, and yeah. 
And there's a flight school in town now, so... There is. Yeah. So he out. starts when he's 15. He's studying now. Yep. But he'll start the um, flying when he's 15. He wow. won't have a commercial pilot's licence by the time he's 18. Yeah, that's cool. And you, well, you might you might be able to buy a plane and uh, he can fly you around, so he will work for you. Yeah, well, <laughs> that'd be nice. But uh, I guess on the family front, you talk about you feel like potentially in the early days you, you may not have given them all the attention, but to be honest, Damo, I like what you've done because you've now, at the age of 10 and 12, when they really need their dad, they need that direction. They're making pretty big life decisions in the next five years, sort of, you know, 15 or even the next five to 10 years, 15 to 20. And you're there now because you can be. And you you just spoke about the fact that you can now help your son get his PPL when he turns 15 and, and go on to hopefully become a commercial pilot. But you've done that. I wouldn't feel guilty about putting your family in a position where... <coughs> You now are right there beside them and financially can offer these little boys anything that they desire, which is which is really special. And um, sometimes you've got to put the hard yards in early days. I mean, I don't think the boys are going to remember being babies or five or six, but they're going to remember being 15 and Dad helping them get their pilot's licence. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's... Um, I mean, you can't turn the, turn the clock back and nor would I, would I want to change anything either. I'm really mm. happy with what I've chosen, but... Um, I guess I'm, I'm sort of putting in more now with, with all that and enjoying it more and seeing the results out of it is a different aspect compared to when you're probably travelling trying to create your own success. Yes, yes, I see what you're saying. But creating your own success all with your beautiful family in mind of setting them up as well, which is which is really good. Are either of the boys into skiing? Do they... I know you've got a pretty cool social boat that wakes me up at my house in Gold Goal occasionally, but uh, on your 120 mile an hour flybys. But do they actually love getting out behind the boat? Or? Yeah, we've got a, a Malibu there wakes at us, so um, they're not real big in it, and I've never really pushed the point that what I like they have to do, but mm. I can see they're slowly getting more involved, and I don't think they'll ever be big skiers, but they'll certainly enjoy the social side of it. Yeah, enjoy the river, because yeah. you live on the river, so they yeah. get that pretty... And they love the jet ski, the boys too, don't they? Yeah, the jet skis, and, and even the, the force. They do like going in the boat, the buzz, so, you know, it's in the blood. It's in the, um, the need for speed. Well, becoming a pilot, he obviously likes some sort of risk. He's a bit of a risk taker. A recent toy is a new simulator that I've got in my man cave, and... Uh, I'm noticing that the kids are probably starting, especially Dane, loving using that as well. So you can get, you can drive F1, supercars, trophy trucks. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> and for the listeners, you can't see what goes on in this boardroom as we chat, but I did get a photo of the simulator. And just if you check out Rick Kelly's uh, simulator he's using in the V8 series at the minute, Damo Matthews is probably, if not better, than that setup. So pretty impressive, and I'm sure the boys do love that. That's That's really, really cool. Which moves on perfectly to what is your next project? I know that uh, the way that Damien Matthews's mind ticks, there would be something always on the go. You've mentioned, you've mentioned once over a beer, uh, you're potentially getting into say a buggy racing or some sort of racing just to keep the adrenaline pumping. Uh, maybe a potential think one year. Is there anything like that outside of business and family life that you're in the background thinking you may may have a crack at? Yeah, I've thought about different things at different times and really haven't followed through on any of it. I used to do a little bit of off-road racing with Bradley Gallard, and um, so I had a little bit of a, a taste of that, and, you know, to do something with the Fink Desert Race uh, would be fun, but the amount of work involved in the whole team, and I'm getting a little bit older now, I, I don't think that will happen. And now, the bigger projects in my mind right now is more um, commercially 
bigger bigger properties for the business, building another house, holiday houses, and so I have a desire more to push probably business I'm, and family life. Business and family. I'm sort of I've been too selfish over the past, so I don't think I'll be actually doing anything competitive, unfortunately. Oh my gosh, not only is he here at 7am after a long weekend, but he's also hanging up the socks from an adrenaline junkie and taking on family and business, which is really cool. And it's, um, I love hearing that because as a mum now, and that's a big word for me, isn't it, Damo? Who would have thought? But as a mum now, I, can, I guess I can appreciate what you're saying because I watch Mia learn to roll over and I'm jumping out of my skin in excitement, um, which is pretty funny. So I think... Sometimes you, you really do get the happiness and success that you used to get through sport, through watching your children do things. And you just spoke about Dane, you know, wanting to get his pilot's license. And imagine the first time you go out there and watch him fly the plane. You know, that's going to be as cool as winning a Sydney Bridge to Bridge outright or something. So it's interesting, isn't it, how, how as we get older your sort of mindset does change and your vision on what you want out of life is also changing. I took Dane to a 737 simulator in Adelaide, so it's a full-size plane. <clears throat> we flew from Adelaide to Sydney and back to Adelaide as in a simulation. Wow. And he had a pilot next to him, and, um, and just to watch him do that was enough to, you know, encourage me just to keep following him now. And yeah. Mm. That's really, really cool. Now, when we, um, I guess, I want to finish off with something for the listeners to, uh, to get them cranking and something that they potentially may not have known about Damien Matthews and be good to share with them a little fast fact about Damo that that not many would know if if anyone uh and just to, a little bit of an insight into the Damien Matthews outside of sport business and um and family life what do you got Damo oh I haven't got too much to share on a podcast Chelsea but uh, <laughs> there's certainly been um, uh a lot of memories, but um, I do remember very clearly getting kicked out of a, a major resort in Australia with a female world champion skier one day from uh, from the from the from the fire alarm going off, which was quite funny. But um, and there's been a lot of other events, but um, yeah, maybe uh, not for the podcast. Oh dear, yeah. Look, uh, I didn't expect him to throw me under the bus, guys. But yeah, I do remember us standing out the front with around 400 odd other patrons from the hotel and. At about 4.30 in the morning. Probably wasn't our smartest decision, but that was way back in the day. We're much more mature now. Uh, we would love to thank you for your time, Mr. Matthews. We are sitting here at G1 Logistics and GDS headquarters. There is staff and trucks everywhere, and this lovely gentleman has taken his time out of his morning for us to listen to the journey of Damien Matthews, which is one that Truly, um, I aspire. I aspire to what he's achieved, not only in sport, but in business. And uh, an amazing athlete, an amazing businessman, and now sounding like a, a pretty big family man. Before we actually finish, I, I'm intrigued to know, you mentioned holiday homes. Where are you looking at potentially anything in mind? I just wanted to, for my own knowledge, more than even the listeners. Um, let's just start to look. Um, yeah, Mildura is a great place to live, but we want to have somewhere else during the winter time, so... It might be somewhere closer to to Queensland, somewhere where there's an airport not too far away. Mm-hmm. Not Port Douglas. Maybe Hamilton Island. Oh, Hamilton Island. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. That'll and that can be a little winter escape, I guess, because in uh, in summer it's pretty cool being out down here on the river. Yeah, yeah. I did just need a bit of a balance. It's nice here, but 
it's freezing the winter and yeah. we're getting to the stage now where we can do a bit more travel and at, you know who knows who knows what's to come yeah mm. oh lovely and then well i can't wait till you get your hamilton island holiday home so i can come and visit there as well we might do our next podcast on the deck of that place i think but look thanks damo i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna pass over to you just to say thank you to anyone i guess who's been a part of your journey no doubt don't forget mum and dad because they're a pretty big piece but pass over to you to finish off and like i said we we really appreciate you coming on the rope i'm sure the listeners are going to love the journey of damien matthews if i recap on 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 what we've what I've got out of this and one thing well a couple of things that are very common in all the amazing people I get to talk to is mindset mindset uh, not only the mindset of yourself but the mindset of the team that will to want to achieve that competitive spirit um, just filters through everywhere in all of my uh, podcasts where there's been successful people and and one thing I do take on board is that never give up attitude so for all the listeners out there you know, Damien Matthews has not got to where he is today by sitting back and, and hoping it's going to happen. He's never given up. He's experienced the highs and lows throughout sport and business. Uh, I mean, to, to overcome a major injury and, and live the rest of your life with a dead arm and still be as successful as he is is an amazing achievement. It, it's great to uh, to listen to the story, Dame. I would love to thank you on behalf of not only On The Rope but myself. You're a good friend. I appreciate you taking the time and hand over to you just to uh, finish off and thank anyone. <coughs> Thanks, Charles, and well done with this podcast, On The Rope. It sounds pretty cool. I'll make sure I tune in, have a listen to some of the other interviews. But, you know, the my success is, this is like most people, it's all about all the people around you and it starts from family to to you know, back when I was skiing to all the guys that had the boats and let me have a run and give me the opportunities through to Mark and Tracy Cranny with the Team Hell and all them skiers that made us look good and so it was a big journey and I don't want to list names because you end up forgetting names but it was um, it was about all the all the team and all the people around us to create the result. Awesome. Thanks Damo. I'll let you get back to business as usual. Thanks Charles. Fantastic job there, Chelsea. Thanks so much for Damien Matthews to allow us into his headquarters there in GTS Transport. Now it is time to head over to Bisho for your chance to win a On The Rope podcast T-shirt sponsored by Savage Force Merchandise. Bisho. Good on you, Lump. What a great chat between Chelsea and Damo that was. Well, this week's question to win an On The Rope podcast T-shirt is what sport did Damien compete in with Brad Gallard? Send us a private message to the Facebook page with your answer and good luck. Mate, fantastic question. Let's see who can get that one right. Anyway, it is time for us to go. You take care, look after yourselves and remember, we will see you on the water. Audio production has been proudly produced by Mal's Media in association with our On The Rope podcast sponsors. Coldies Tow Bars and Bull Bars, Mark Savage Merchandise, Bullet Boats, Rubber Jungle Wetsuits, TJH Coaching and Consulting, Rapid Concepts, Sven Productions, Bad Lad Australia and Bisho Media. Bisho Media.